Welcome to Practical Christian Living. We think, oh, I can handle this. This is going to be fun. A little spastic, but I can control it. And you take it out for a walk and it ends up destroying you. And it ends up keeping you from running the race. And it trips you up and can cause you to fall on the ground. Now it says here, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares you and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So many things can distract us from keeping our eyes on the race set before us. God wants us to remain strong in His Word, growing and learning, sharing and being effective for His kingdom. An encouraging warning today to lay aside whatever it is that might be keeping us from running our race well for Christ. With part two of our teaching entitled, Running to Win, out of Hebrews chapter 12, here's Robert Furrow. I picked up some runner's shoes the other day and they're like made out of marshmallows. I don't know what they make them out of, I really don't. They're like incredibly light because you want all the weight off of you. And you think about your feet, if you're wearing heavy shoes and you're gonna run, you know, five miles, man, you're gonna get fatigued because there's weight on that. And so when these runners get out, man, they're just wearing, now they wear the longer shorts, right? But they're all skin tight and they don't walk out with anything heavy. I don't know that the rules don't say that. What if we were watching the Olympics next time an American came out and he had a fur coat on <laughs> and combat boots and got all down in it. And now, I don't know, there's no rule that says you can't wear a fur coat when you run the race or you can't wear combat boots when you run it, but people don't do it. Why don't they do it? Because it would be stupid. Because they would know that you can't win a race with a fur coat on in the Olympics or with the combat boots or with the refrigerator on your back or whatever else there might be that may distract you. I don't know why I said refrigerator, by the way. Maybe, maybe that means something to somebody here. I don't know, but I don't know why I said it. But anyway, what kind of weights might there be that hold you back? When I was a youth pastor in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, I was a lay pastor which means I wasn't on staff, I wasn't getting paid. I had a business that I ran, an auto upholstery business, and I was the youth pastor. I had, because I had a business, I had a small amount of time to prepare the studies for the kids. There were a couple of times that I gave the studies and I just felt like that was really awful. There's nothing worse than being in a study that somebody hasn't prepared for. And there might be some worse things. All right, getting your fingernails pulled out might be worse than sitting in a study somebody hasn't prepared for. But have you ever been in a study and you know, obviously, this guy hasn't prepared what he's going to say because he's like just kind of random, you know, kind of randomly going on. Prayer is good. Prayer is a good thing. We need to pray. Pray. Prayer is good. It's good to pray. And he does that for like 45 minutes, right? Well, I'd give the studies and then I'd feel like, Lord, I just didn't give what I was supposed to to these kids. And um, I decided to get rid of the TV. I would come home from work, I would eat dinner, and then I only had a couple of hours to put together a study a couple nights a week. So I had a total of like four hours to get a study together. But I got addicted to a television show. You guys are looking at me like that's never happened to you. <laughs> I know it's happened to you. It wasn't a bad show, all right? It was called White Shadow. Any of you guys remember that back in the 80s, all right? So I just wanted to watch it every night. So when I should get up after dinner and go study, I'd turn on the TV. Well, I told my wife finally, I need to get rid of the TV. She said, yeah, let's get rid of it. She always wanted to get rid of it. Now we gave it to her sister. We did get it back later, okay? <laughs> I told this story one time and somebody said, Pastor Robert doesn't have a TV in his house. Yes, I do. Uh, but we got rid of it and it helped because I didn't have the discipline to be able to shut it off. I needed to go to the, to the extreme of getting rid of the television. 
Now that might be the case for some here. Maybe television has become a distraction to you. People will say to me from time to time, I don't have time to pray. Really? You don't have time to pray? Is it really that you don't have time to pray or is it a priority issue that is set up? Now, the interesting thing is about two weeks after I got rid of the TV, somebody asked me, did you see this show on last night? And I said, no, I didn't see it. I, I don't have a TV. I'm a Christian. <laughs> Isn't it funny that it's by my weakness that I, it was because of my own weakness I got rid of the TV, but it became a thing of pride for me. They might not have had any problems having a TV in their house. They might have been doing everything they were supposed to do. See, that became a weight to me. And if I wanted to run that race God had given me swiftly, then I needed to give that up. One of our assistant pastors here at the church, in fact, our very first assistant pastor was a guy by the name of Sam Holloway. I saw Sam at a service just a, a little while ago. He's retired now. He lives up in Camp Verde. I was 25 when we started the church here, just a kid. I was 25. I looked 12. Okay? Not even kidding. Um, so people would come to the church and go, we really liked your teaching. We really liked the music, but you're just too young. I don't have that said to me anymore, by the way. <laughs> kind of sad. But Sam was older. He was in his 50s, which when I was 25 seemed like a whole lot older than it seems right now, okay? And uh, Sam was also involved in the Navigators. Any of you guys who know Sam, you know that he was very involved with the Navigators. So he was the assistant pastor at our church, and he was also involved with, with the Navigators. And um, I'd gone fishing one time, and I asked Sam, hey, you want to go fishing with us? And Sam said, I gave it up. He had given it up because it was taking his time. And he felt as something that he needed to do, not because God, not because it was demanded of him to do it, but as a form of sacrifice to God so that he could take the gospel and make it a higher priority, he gave it up. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sin. It's not sin to go fishing. It's not sin to watch White Shadow on TV. It might be sin to watch something else on TV, but not the White Shadow on TV. But there might be something in your life that you need to lay aside. I was distracted in my faith by a fish tank. I built a fish tank in my house. I got a little beta, a fighting fish, and I would just watch it. <laughs> little chest, you know, pirate's chest, bubbling, blah, 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 little fish. You know, if you put your hand up with those fish, the betas, you know what I'm talking about? It makes a reflection, the puff up. Watch that fish puff up. The real distraction came when I decided, I'm a youth pastor at Calvary in Albuquerque. I've got my own business, and I decide that I'm going to raise betas and sell them, that I'm going to breed them. So I buy a book on breeding betas. I get them. I put them together. They breed. They have the babies. And when I first notice them, you're supposed to watch the tank several times a day when the babies come along because mom and dad eat them. They go lunch. They go after them. So all of a sudden I look and there's hundreds of these little babies in there and mom and dad are eating them. I got to get them out of there. And I finally get the mom and dad out without killing too many of the babies, by the way. And there's hundreds of these things. And when they get to a certain age, then... You got to get them out of the tank. So all around our house were these little bitty plastic jars of betas. They were on windowsills. They were on the fireplace mantle. They were on our coffee uh, table that was out in front. They were everywhere. Now, here I am, the youth pastor. I got my own business. And I'm like, <laughs> feeding hundreds of betas. And then on top of that, when they get to the point where you can tell the males from the females, the males start developing color. And so it's like really cool. And you look, there's a red one and there's a purple one. And there's a purple one with red tips and there's a red one with pepper. And that one's ugly. And I, <laughs> so I'm all distracted. And true story, I finally go to the pet shop to sell them. And the guy says, I don't want hundreds of betas. Where am I going to, I didn't think it through. I didn't, have, I didn't have a marketing idea, all right? I didn't think it through. On top of that, he said, I can't even buy them from you. 
because you gotta be licensed. You just can't raise betas and sell them. That's all controlled. So now I had hundreds of betas. What do you do with hundreds of betas? No, I didn't do that. I'm just kidding. It's just a joke, all right? Some of you guys are immediately angry at me. You flushed hundreds of betas down the toilet. No, I didn't. He took them. The, the pet shop said, I can't buy them from you, but you can give them to me. <laughs> so I brought all of them down, carried them in two at a time. There you go. There you go. There you go. And afterwards, my wife says to me, what have you learned from this? <laughs> well, one of the things that I learned is that I can easily get distracted into something. Hobbies can do it. And hobbies are not bad. Fellas, I know something about you. I know you've got a hobby. And I know that you spend more than your wife knows on your hobby, all right? Some of you guys are like, you're not supposed to say things like that. That's a man pack. You're not supposed to say. You're not supposed to tell our wives things like that. Here's the truth. And I have hobbies. I'm not saying we don't have them, okay? I'm just saying that we evaluate our lives. And if there's something that's keeping you from running, if you're wearing a fur coat, if you've got combat boots on, if your life is cluttered with too many things, then get rid of what you've got to get rid of so that you can run the race for Jesus swiftly and effectively. The second thing he says is the sin which so easily ensnares us. That's the thing about sin. You think you can control it, but sin controls you. One of the things that happens when you're born again, I had said that when you, when you give your life to Christ, when you're born again, there's a dynamic change that takes place. One of those dynamic changes is that you don't want to sin anymore. You want to be obedient to him. Now, there are strongholds and there are struggles, and I'm not saying that a Christian never has struggles, and I'm certainly not saying that a Christian doesn't sin. I'm saying that we have forgiveness and we have grace, but that we have a different heart because we've been touched by the Savior, because He has, he has drawn us to Himself. But oftentimes, Christians will kind of keep one little pet sin, or maybe two or three little pet sins. Every once in a while, they just want to take their sin out for a walk. They just kind of want to keep it. They don't want to really get serious of battling against it. They don't have any struggle with sin. Someone says, I don't struggle with sin. I just give in. It's not a struggle for me with sin. I just give in to it. No, we all need to struggle against that sin. But here's the thing. Sin, if you don't rule sin, if you don't control and rule sin in your life, then sin will rule over you. Sin will always take control. It's like when you have that dog. Any of you guys have a dog that's not leash trained? I saw some poor guy walking down the street uh, by our house with uh, obviously kind of like a puppy, like a big puppy, but obviously like a puppy and the dog was just dragging him down the road. That's what happens with sin. You go, I'm gonna take my sin out for a little walk. And you get drugged down the road by the dog. You think you're taking your dog for a walk, but your dog's actually taking you for a walk. You think you're taking sin out for a walk, but sin actually controls you. And what happens with sin is it's enticing, it draws you in, we're enticed by our flesh, there's something that we want by it, whether it's alcohol, whether it's getting drunk, or whether it's some lust in our lives, and pretty soon, it's not enticing, it's just trapping. Pretty soon, it's not that you're drawn by that, you're just, you're just sucked into it. It has become Lord over you, it has become a master over you. That's why it's sin. God didn't randomly choose things to be sin. Sin is sin for a reason because it's destructive, because it brings death, because God doesn't want those things in your life. And they easily entangle you. They easily ensnare you. And because sin is deceptive, we think I won't be trapped by it. I won't be ensnared by it. I can handle this. Other people might be ensnared by it, but I won't be ensnared by it. And so 
we need to get rid of that. I had a dog. We went down to the Humane Society and we got a dog. His name was Red because he was an Irish setter. And uh, he was a spaz his whole life. When we picked him up, I thought it was just because we had kids. We brought Jessica and David down and we picked out the dog and he was all hyper, but I thought, that's eh, it's been in a cage all day. It's okay. This dog was the most hyper dog you could ever see. He, he knew that at the moment he heard the gate click open, he would run into it full force, knock the gate open and run down the street. Now it wasn't running away. He would run down the street and stop and turn and look at you. It was playing catch me if you can. That's what the dog was playing. So you'd run down the street after it because you think it's going to get hit by a car, right? So you're running down the street and you would wait till you're about 10 feet away, then run again and then stop and turn around and look at you. And if a person would come out because Red wanted, he was social, he, oh, new person, he'd run over to him. So you're running down the road after this dog and when a person would come out and he'd go over and pet him, you'd be like, catch the dog, catch the dog. I got shin splints because I ran after that dog in boots. I used to wear cowboy boots, not because I was a cowboy, but because they made me two inches taller. I stopped growing at 5'11", boots made me 6'1". So I'm chasing this dog in cowboy boots and I end up with shin splints because of it. I gave, there were some, there's a couple of people we didn't like, we gave the dog to them. Again, true story, the dog runs away from them and they call me up and they go, the dog you gave us ran away again and we're not going after it. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs that a righteous man values the life of his animal. I got to tell you, my first instinct was just to let Red go. That was my first instinct, just let him go. But I went out looking for Red because I wanted to be a righteous man. And I found that stupid dog brought it back home again. <laughs> the other thing that Red would do was he did not, he would not walk. When you took that dog out, he went in circles. He would not just walk down the road. He was like sin. He'd just go in circles. We think, oh, I can handle this. This is going to be fun. A little spastic, but I can control it. And you take it out for a walk and it ends up destroying you. And it ends up keeping you from running the race. And it trips you up and can cause you to fall on the ground. Now it says here, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares you and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now we had showed you the Eric Little uh, little clip before the service. Eric Little, the 1920s, right? He was called the Flying Scotsman, right? He's Scottish and he run. Think about Eric Little is that he wasn't an efficient runner. For those of you guys that are runners, you know, when you watch somebody run, you can tell whether or not they're a beginner because people who have run for a while learn how to run efficiently. You want to kind of keep everything in line. You want as little movement as possible just to be able to, you don't flail when you run. So if you see somebody that's running and they're like, then you know it's a beginner, all right? Same thing is true with a cyclist. When you look at a cyclist going down the road, they learn to keep everything tucked in. Their knees are tucked in. Everything's very tight. When someone's got their knees out, they're pedaling down the road. It's like, <laughs> the guy's a beginner, all right? Um, Eric Little was not only called the Flying Dutchman, but he was, he was not an efficient runner. He'd flail his arms and he would flail his legs. They, they copied his run there. If you notice that, his arms were flailing. He would stick his chin out and his head back and he would run like that. And he beat everybody. Imagine if he got some training on how to run efficiently. Imagine how fast uh, he could have been. But that was a true story. He fell on the infield grass. He was tripped up and he fell. And he got up and got back in the race and won it. For you and I, we'll win if we get back in the race. Now, in the 1984 Olympics, and I haven't told you guys the story yet, right? 
All right, I've told five, this is my fifth service, so sometimes I forget. If I'm telling the same story again, please tell me. Just give me some kind of sign, like, dude, you already <laughs> gave the story. Um, 1984 Olympics, I might have the Olympics wrong, it might have been 1980, but it was 80, 84 Olympics. There was an American runner named Mary Decker. And that rival, who was a British runner who ran barefoot, named Zola Budd. And the, the, the rivalry, and I forget what they ran, the 400 meter or whatever it was that they ran, it was a longer race. And um, about two-thirds of the way through the race, um, Zola Budd held the record, but Mary Decker was expected to overcome Zola Budd and to set a new record, okay? And um, Mary Decker, and you don't see this if you're watching it, if you were watching it, just watching the event. It was in LA. When you're watching the event, uh, it just looked like all of a sudden Zola Budd bumps in to Mary Decker and knocks her down. And Zola Budd was being booed after Mary Decker fell to the infield grass. And in fact, she said later on, I backed away. She finished 10 seconds slower than her best time because she was being booed. You can imagine how demoralizing it would be to be in a race, to have some kind of a, you know, something happen like that, contact in the race, and then to all of a sudden be booed because you're running that race. Well, when they went into slow motion, it was Mary Decker that clipped Zola Budd. Zola Budd was in the lead and she's barefoot and she's running and Mary Decker hits with her shoes on Zola Budd's heel, knocks her off balance and it takes like five seconds for her to get out of balance and she runs into Mary Decker and Mary Decker stumbles on the infield grass. You'll remember the life picture of her husband. He went out and she wouldn't get up off the infield grass, right? She just laid there screaming. Remember the agony on her face? And he went out and he picked her up and he carried her back. And the picture was of her carry, him carrying her across the track. And her face is just contorted as all of the, the, the thoughts of getting the medal and making a new world record just faded away. Now, some of us are like Mary Decker. Some of us have fallen to the infield grass and the people are running away and we're just there. And I want to say today, run the race with endurance. And if you fall down, get up again. Eric Little won the race. I'm just saying when your race, we're not competing against each other. I have a race to run and you have a race to run. We're, we're like a marathon race. There's only a handful of people that enter a marathon race thinking of winning it and all of those are Kenyans. I don't know why that's the case, but it is the case, right? Right? But everybody else gets into a marathon and just says, I just want to finish. I don't care how long it takes me. I just want to finish. And near the end of the race, when the last people are coming in, there's always people that wait for them. And they're like Barnabases. They're cheering them on. Come on, just finish, just finish. And these poor people can barely walk anymore. Some of them are literally crawling to be able to finish the race. We need some, some Barnabases. We need some people who will wait around and say, come on, get back in the race. I know you've struggled. I know you've stumbled. I know you aren't quite prepared. Probably wearing a fur coat throughout the marathon, but what it, spiritually, but finish the race. Just go across the finish line. The last thing we're told in order to finish this race is to look at Jesus. Look at verse two. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Only looking upon Jesus will give us the endurance that we need. Sometimes we get caught up in other things. Sometimes we become denominationalists. We're a part of a Methodist or Lutheran or Reformed theology or Calvinism or Arminianism, and we get caught up with other things. Now, I'm not saying that any of that is bad, okay? You could get caught up in Calvary Chapel. I'm really blessed to be a pastor at Calvary. I, when I was young, I listened to Pastor Chuck Smith and Raul Reese and uh, Skip Heitzig on the radio, and their radio ministries really minister to me. That God raised me up to be a Calvary pastor is just still to this day, it amazes me that God did such a thing because I was so blessed by it beforehand. But I'm gonna tell you, my first allegiance is not to Calvary Chapel. 
And I'm as Calvary Chapel as you can get, by the way, guys, all right? My first allegiance is to Jesus. It's not about Calvary Chapel. It's not about a denomination. It's not about a theology. There are some people that get so caught up in Reformed theology that that's all they do. It's all they want to talk about. And I'll tell you what, you're going to lose momentum. Pretty soon that becomes something that can't keep you going because it's a relationship with Jesus. When we look at him, the deeper in love we fall with him and the more motivation we have to run efficiently. Do you know the longer that you're married, the more the, the commitment in that marriage becomes stronger? Now, it's funny, I said that in one service and some older couple were shaking their head, no. I don't know what that was all about. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. They did a, a poll of people that had been married 50 years plus. And one of the questions that they asked was, what was the best year of your marriage? And for various reasons, health and other things, the average was 34 years into the marriage was the best year. That means if you've been married for 10 years and you're going, I got to get out of this thing, just hang in there. <laughs> just make it to 34. It's going to be awesome. Really and truly, no, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, right? But really and truly, the longer you're married, the more your hearts are knit together. I was married to Lisa for 30 years. And I can tell you, it was like every year our marriage was getting better and God was bringing us closer together. And the same thing is true with Jesus because it's a relationship. If you can keep your eyes upon him and not get caught up in something else, if you can keep your eyes on him, then you'll run your race efficiently and you'll run it to the very end. Peter is on a boat and Jesus is walking on the water. When he sees Jesus, he's scared that it's a ghost. And finally, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, then bid me to come to you. Now, Jesus is out on the water and I think Jesus probably went, this can't end well. <laughs> All right, Peter, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. We think of Jesus walking on the water. We don't think of Peter doing it. But the Bible says when he got a, you know, partway there to Jesus that he looked at the waves. He took his eyes off of Jesus and he immediately began to sink. Now he cried out, Lord, help. And the Lord picked him up out of the water. Get back in the boat, Peter. <laughs> kind of, you know, you owe you a little faith. He didn't say, let's, let's have another lesson. Let me teach you how to walk on water. He was like, okay, get back in the boat. Peter didn't have time to pray a long prayer. He didn't have time to say, oh God, I call upon thee today that thou might save me from the drama. Right? He just, Lord, help. Some of us just need to cry out, Lord, help. But he put his eyes on the waves. The cares and the worries of the world choke the word. Do you have your eyes on something else? Do you have your eyes on a, a desire, a goal? Do you have your eyes on whatever else besides Jesus? Looking unto Jesus, why? He's the beginning and the end of your faith. He's the one that started it and he's the one who will end it. And he endured, he endured the cross despising the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. And you know what the joy that was set before him is? You. It is you. He endured that cross for you because he knew that if he didn't endure it, that you would perish. And so he finished his race enduring until the end, even though there was shame and even though there was torture. And we put our eyes upon him and endure the race because there's a cause, because there's a purpose. Maybe some of you guys are on the infield grass today it's time to get back up and get in the race. You can win the race. If you will, lay aside every weight. If you'll put away the sin which so easily entangles you and set your eyes upon Jesus. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. And we thank you for the encouragement that we find here today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and really help us to walk with you, run with you, the race that we have been given to run. We pray that uh, you would help us 
that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, if you tarry that long, that we would find ourselves walking with you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.